Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Rebecca Whiteley, British Academy Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Birmingham, to talk about her new book, Birth Figures, Early Modern Prints and the Pregnant Body, out this year, that's 2023, with the University of Chicago Press. Hello, Rebecca. How are you today? Hello. Uh, yeah, I'm very good. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Having a lovely weekend, or lovely start to the weekend, mm-hmm. I think. Um, you know, and spring, there's always such a hopeful time. Like, you know, maybe I'll finish the book this summer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah, maybe this will be the time I renew my, redo my syllabus in <laughs> the week in advance. So let's like, let's get. <clears throat> All right. So I really enjoyed this book and I had no idea what I was going to be getting into going into it. I saw the title and thought, oh yeah, sure, let's give this one a go. But it was a really an enjoyable read. You're a very nice writer. And um, the, the illustrations are fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think so. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but so how did you come? This is my first question always is how did you come to write this? Um, yeah, well, it was a it sort of grew, I think, very organically um, from work I did as a student. Um, you know, I was working on my master's in art history and I was um, doing a course with my the, the scholar who had then become my PhD supervisor, Professor Mechtield Fend. Um, and we were working on medical images and I was scrolling through that wonderful resource, Welcome Images. Um, and I just saw these little pictures of um, infants in light bulbs is what I thought they were when I first saw them. And I just thought, these are interesting. And I started to read about them and I just realized that I there wasn't much and what there was, I didn't buy. Um, so I think that's where, you know, and it became my PhD thesis and then many years later, uh, this book, um, and you know, so, and it was a one, it's just such a wonderful <laughs> opportunity to research and to let the material guide, you know, what I wanted to say and where I wanted to take it, you know, over quite a long period of time. 
Um, and I just kept discovering more ways in which I thought they were making meaning for early modern viewers. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is really organic. That's a nice way to have come about your topic, just to find yeah. something interested in it and go. I was very, very lucky. I see that I was so lucky to stumble across this source and to develop just like such an interest in it and to find that there was lots there. Right. And the, the beautiful kind of combination there of lots there and not a lot of work. Um, <laughs> yeah, not a lot written on them yet. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Big scholarly hole to fill. Um, which is, yeah, is great. So let's talk about, let's, before we, anything else, cause let's talk about your sources. So let's talk about these images. Tell us about what do they look like? Where do they, where do you find them? Yeah. Okay. Well, so essentially they are, I mean, it's, uh, some people have, um, disparagingly written about them as babies in bottles. There's a little, uh, little engraved illustrations in books basically, or woodcut illustrations in books that show the fetus, um, usually in the uterus or the womb, but without any more context of the pregnant body um, in different positions, because obviously um, during childbirth, um, the fetus can be positioned in different ways. And normally it's head first, but um, it can be lots of different ways. And <clears throat> particularly before things like ultrasound and cesarean section, um, it was hard to know how the fetus was positioned and very hard to deliver it if it wasn't um, either head first or breech, which is buttocks first. Um, so it was of great interest to, um, early modern physicians and scholars and also early modern midwives that they know these presentations and that they understand how to deal with them. Um, and the publication of these images uh, in early modern books on surgery and on midwifery really grew in concert with interest in how you, um, manage them, how you manage different presentations in childbirth. Um, yeah, so that's where they were found, uh, you know, everything from scholarly books on gynecology down to, um, popular manuals that really were written for midwives. Yeah. So tell me about these books, these books that are written for midwives. Mm -hmm. Um, what are, what are they meant to do? Well, yeah, I mean, scholars disagree. <laughs> um, some people would say that they weren't really for midwives to read at all. Um, you know, they were a way for male physicians um, and uh, sort of academically trained uh, men to gain control of the field of midwifery, to exert authority over childbirth, um, which, you know, it was not only a, an area in which women were the professionals and the experts, but also one in which it was felt that women's bodies were mysterious and uncontrolled and doing things that men would really prefer that they did know about and were in control of. Um, and I think that is certainly part of what was going on with these books. But I think if you actually spend time with the texts and if you actually start to look at things like literacy rates um, and evidence for women's reading communities, there is actually really solid evidence that um, women were reading these books. Um, and that they were using them, you know, within their own systems for what they felt they needed to improve their practice. You know, so I'm not saying that, um, you know, midwives came across these books and immediately changed everything they did according to what the men said they should do. But I think, you know, women were intelligent, discerning readers who were able to take these new textual knowledges that hadn't been available to them previously and incorporate them into the 
really core sort of social and bodily knowledge they had developed through their practice and through their lives and their communities. Yeah, I mean, like the traditional understanding is that there's a thing and mostly women do it and then men take it over and turn it into a profession. Right, like cooking and, and then there are chefs and childbirth and then there are gynecologists. But your 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 work is pushing back on that, right? Definitely. Yeah. Like resting a lot more power in the hands of midwives. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that there's there was a point in feminist historical scholarship where it was important to make this argument, you know, that, you know, men had, you know, men and masculine medicine as an epistemology came along and took took away these spheres of female expertise. Um, but it genuinely just was a lot more complicated than that. And the thing to remember, particularly for Europe, I think sadly the States has a bit of a different history of this, is that um, midwives who were also women have always delivered the majority of babies. You know, and that's still that has never not been true. Um, so, in terms of men taking this over, you know, it's, it's clearly more complicated than that. Um, but also, I think you know, there's such an interesting history to be understood, not about you know the dynamics of men um, taking over and controlling women, but actually the dynamics of collaboration. And for a long, you know, for the period covered in my book. Um, many of these writers, who were mostly but not all men, um, were learning a lot of these skills from women, from women midwives, um, and had quite could have quite productive relationships with them, where sort of different spheres of knowledge and expertise were respected. Um, and I think this is an aspect of cultures of medicine that is much less often talked about, and you know, kind of really enrich our histories of women as professionals, right. So there's much more of a discussion. There's much more of a conversation going on between people this knowledge and how it's being recorded. But I, I'm seeing also here with these the the books themselves, right, and kind of medical novels or not novels, medical like um, treatises more broadly. I'm seeing this also dialectic of the knowledge, right? It's kind of it reflects practitioners to say what they know, and then these and it's recorded. But then that also speaks and determines what other people know, right? Did that did that question make any sense, right? Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. And I think that's, you know, I think we can, you can fall into the trap of thinking that there's textual, official, academic knowledge, and then there's the embodied knowledge of midwives who did tend to learn through apprenticeship rather than through any kind of formalized training. But um, you know, if you actually start to dig into things like history of epistemologies and the history of reading practices, we know that that's not how it worked at all. And actually knowledge circulated between um, oral and textual, um, uh, you know, and specialist and community knowledges, like all of these things were constantly reinforming each other. Um, and this is partly, you know, what I wanted to do with these images is to say that what the authors said they were and what they said is only part of their history. Because of course, once you release them into a reading public, People do whatever they want with them, um, and they form cores of totally other kinds of knowledges. Um, one of the things you said just in your introduction that's really stuck with me is that the womb was trouble and it was potential. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you tell me about that. What do you mean? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I think it is. It's one of the things I think I try to keep in mind writing the book. It, you know, because you know, publishers and. Everyone wants you to say why it's important to readers generally or to historians generally and not just to scholars of childbirth. 
And I think that the topic is totally important to wider histories of the early modern period because it, these were cultures that were obsessed with the womb um, as this space where, you know, every single man had been born from a womb and they didn't understand how it worked. And it was in a woman's body, so they couldn't even see it. Um, and, you know, and this was the period when, you know, expertise around generation or re what we would call reproduction rested with women. Um, and even though there were physicians and gynecologists, um, they were often having to cede that authority to women. And I think that this was just like incredibly problematic um, for a patriarchal society. And I think you have to bear that in mind, the ten this like constant tension when you look at representations of the womb from this time. And the womb is responsible for so much more than just childbirth, right? It's, I mean, what's madness after all? It's Yes, exactly. And, you know, I write a little bit about this in my book that, you know, by, by the early modern period, lots of physicians were saying, oh, the womb does not wander around the body. Um, it's not causing hysteria by drifting around and, you know, making women all loopy. Um, but actually, when you this sort of residual feeling that maybe it was autonomous within the female body uh, really sticks when you actually start to read what they're saying about the womb. That they they that lots of people really conceive of it as something that has its own wants and um, purposes and you know ability to um, you know change things about the female body and therefore like women's behaviour, um, which again like is this sort of expression of male anxiety, right? Uh, you know, you can control the external behavior of women, but they have this agent within them that is doing things that they, not even they seemingly are controlling. Sure. Which really kind of tucks in neatly with ideas about like the maddening nature of Eros and the bodies out of control and like this constant attempt to just figure out what's going on and maybe stop people from having so much sex. <laughs> <laughs> But irresponsible sex. <laughs> uh, uh, the period you chose 1540 to 1774, which I think is driven by your sources a little. Yeah. But it also is a reasonable historical period we, we recognize. How did you make this choice? Well, I mean, again, it was totally led by the sources and which made it easy for me because I knew I wanted to do a bit of a long durée study which I have had to defend at various points. Um, but, you know, it's like once you stick, what, if you stick with the sources, it really, it, it guided me. So, you know, my study focuses on um, England, but with a, a strong consciousness that books and images particularly circulated. Um, so 1540 is the first print birth figure in England. Um, and 1774 is the publication of um, William uh, William Hunter's Anatomy of the Human Gravid Uterus, which is, you know, one of the few um, books on midwifery that has been strongly studied by art historians. You know, so that's sort of where I decided to conclude it is with um, my sort of challenge to actually this one source that has really shaped our understanding of, you know, visual cultures of midwifery. Um, but, you know, it's, I, I picked those dates because they are publication dates, but of course what I'm actually looking at is much more fuzzy. Um, and the, the other thing to say, of course, which the medievalists will be desperate for me to say is that the print ones are not the first birth figures. Um, and there are many manuscript ones that were printed, uh, you know, centuries beforehand and also continued to be produced in manuscript, um, for decades after the print ones emerged. 
But print is different, right? Like there's, we, we make a big deal out of this because print versions are different, like where they're going to go and how widely they're going to release. Yeah, of course. And that's why I don't deal with the manuscript ones much in my studies that, you know, but by their very nature, there are many fewer of them. They have much more limited audiences and they had totally different functions in gynecological manuscripts. How so? Well, I mean, it's a, I mean, just in that they so the readerships were much more masculine and much more academic um so you know they weren't addressing women readers and they were not really teaching people midwifery practice who were then going to go on and practice midwifery so you know a lot of the stuff i discuss around women's knowledge and women's agency in terms of using images really only emerges with print right okay yeah, earlier stuff is just for an understanding of perhaps the study of the human body, which is the study of God in some ways. All right. So print then is, print that really is just about use and it's much more widespread and midwives have their hands on these. Mm, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, who, tell me about these, these women, mostly women who are midwives. There are some, mm-hmm. like, tell me about midwives. Who are these people and what are they? Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> hard to characterize and that everyone, you know, people are different. <laughs> um. And midwives really did differ because, you know, everywhere that there's a community, there will be people giving birth, but not every community will have the same provision of medical care. Um, So, you know, some communities would have like very long standing traditions of um, very experienced midwives who would learn through an apprenticeship system. Um, And this was often a familial, but not relationship but not always you know so you know a a daughter or a niece might study for years and years uh, under the local practicing midwife before they set up on their own um but some communities just had like women who had themselves given birth and were there to sort of help you along as best they could and then there were a much more um a much more of a minority of women who had some level of medical training um and you you know could work with uh childbirth that were known to be difficult or problematic um, and might work over a much larger area and from the evidence we have these women were often related to surgeons um and you know often actually were essentially business partners with their male relatives um but what we know sort of in aggregate is that midwives were very well respected in their communities um, in the early modern period, they earned good money and were respected professionals. Um, and they, their literacy rates were very high compar- in comparison to women generally. Um, so, you know, they certainly weren't elite, but they were, you know, you know, solidly respected members of pretty much every community. Right. And, and, and in the community, right, there are these people who are running, they're not coming from Paris, right? I'm not sending somebody out to the, or London, no, not, I mean, not unless you're talking about the aristocracy, which is not really my interest in this book. But, you know, there were midwives famous enough to be summoned across national borders to deliver monarchs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> really small group of people. Yeah, exactly. Community, community members, well-respected, um, which, you know, um, maybe makes us rethink. The other thing that um, I find with my students is they all think that all like midwives were witches, right? Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not no, <true. laughs> no. The evidence just doesn't exist for this um, at all. 
Because where does this really prevalent idea that these are, you know, herbal wise women or something, where does it come from? Uh, Well, (laughs) it comes from some bad history, I think, basically. And some people assume that, you know, women with power and knowledge in the community must also have been deeply suspicious. Um, But, you know, it turns out, and this is like one of the glorious things about studying the early modern period is that the gender politics we've inherited from the 19th century obviously is not relevant and actually within particular spheres women had quite remarkable levels of authority and power and of course this was like massively circumscribed by the fact that it was still a misogynistic and patriarchal society but it's just you know what we understand about histories of gender politics don't always match with what was actually happening for early modern women no, and that's so important. And this is something like I love about your book is it's just a very clear demonstration that, um, you know, the 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 somewhat strident feminist history that we've gotten from our mothers and the gender politics of the Victorians gave us or have, have given us this vision that just doesn't work. And your book does a great job to demonstrate that. Right? Like this is Thank a you. great <laughs> In fact, no, like there's this other space. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I'm just, I find uh, the idea of being a midwife fascinating too. It's because it's, I mean, this is a very dangerous kind of touchy p- job she has, or like giving birth is dangerous. And these midwives are just in there daily, like, you know, making this happen. It's really impressive. Yeah. And the, yeah, the, I mean, there's, it is. And again, it, it's hard to generalize because, you know, individuals de- dealt so differently with it. But of course, there were lots of instances of midwives who were, you know, denigrated or lost their reputations from particular instances and or you know would attend a particular woman until she had a difficult birth and then she might choose a different midwife um but i think the thing to remember about that is that the majority of births will happen spontaneously um but you know and this is hard to remember as someone uh, who's given birth in um the 21st century because um you know where fetal heart monitoring and you know time scales on what's safe mean that interventions are incredibly common whereas actually in the early modern period you know a midwife who was practicing in a rural community and had a relatively low caseload might encounter a very few complicated births in her career um and actually a reputation of like you know, getting women through the process of childbirth, which everyone expected to be difficult and painful and to leave you with some health news. Um, it was just, um, it, you know, you, you could make a whole career without really encountering um, too many super difficult situations. Sure. Interesting, yeah. Um... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. 
I'm interested as well. And like, so the process, is there, um, is there any clear consensus on wombs, on how, on birth images, right? Do you have, so there's the collection of these images, uh, but there's a dialectic as well, as we discussed earlier, people are talking about them. There are images that are spreading and they're not all the same, right? No, definitely not. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? Like, what is, what does that mean? What does the average person know? Or the, you know, your average midwife even? Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you can't know what any individual knew. And I think the, so one of the things I try to distinguish in my book is between what I call regular and emergency midwives, which was a way to try and, you know, make the distinction, not one between men and women, because there are a lot of male surgeons who started delivering babies and they didn't know what they were doing. And conversely there are a lot of female midwives who actually were very capable and had some level of medical training and so you can make a distinction perhaps between what regular midwives knew which is perhaps they had encountered some birth figures in a printed book maybe one they owned or one they'd seen from someone else um, and they understood perhaps that they showed the different presentations of the fetus and that that might help you identify if the label was going to be tricky, but you know, as I talk about in the book, might also have had all kinds of different meanings and uses for them. And then the emergency midwives, who were perhaps much more engaged in, you know, the contemporary and medical practice and different interventions that might be used, um, and uh, you know, keeping up with how um, birth figures developed or you know began to change and innovate and diversify from the late. 17th century to include all kinds of new medical knowledge so i think there's a real spectrum but you might perhaps you know roughly distinguish between people who are more engaged with the up-to-date in medical culture and people who are less so but and where are they getting this like where is what's what is that what are their primary sources like where where is this knowledge coming from and this information and these images right when before x-rays before sonograms Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think um, I encountered a lot of writing, uh, you know, what writing there was about birth figures tended to be upset about the inaccuracy of them compared to anatomical illustrations. And if you look at anatomical illustrations made at the same time from pregnant cadavers, you know, they are much more detailed. They're much more likely to show, you know, an accurate proportion of the fetus in the uterus, like, you know, one of the criticisms often made about birth figures is that they they're too spacious you know that the fetus is very small within the uterus um but you know when you actually dig into it the this different this difference isn't that birth figures were bad images it's that they were saying they were coming from a totally different knowledge base you know they're not made from dissection they're not made as you know they're not there is no technology at this point that allows you to um see inside the body um, and actually, what would what we ne- what I never really got to the bottom of is how common ex- what we would call like external palpation was, where you feel you feel the pregnant belly for the position of the fetus. It's not really mentioned in texts at the time, which suggests that it was a real black box in terms of what um, what could be known. So really, it was theoretical knowledge that was then being visualized. Um, and there are a couple of really interesting, um, they're quite rare, but sort of excerpts of texts where the physicians are saying how the images were made. And we know that one of these French midwife authors um, had a series of dolls that he used 
So he, because he, you know, his experience of midwifery allowed him to understand the different possible presentations. And he could then recreate them using adults so that then they are a seeable thing that they, that an artist can draw. Um, but the other really interesting thing about birth figures is that while there is like innovation over the period I study, there's also a whole lot of copying. Um, and, the, you know, this wasn't just laziness. It was a fundamental part of how knowledge was made in the early modern period that you recreated knowledge you felt to be accurate um, and therefore made it, you know, more legitimate. Sure. Um, how representative are they meant to be, right? Um, you know, how much is it meant to be like the feed? There's so much room in these, in the bottles, right? Babies in bottles. There's so much more bottle than there is baby. Is that really meant, is that an accurate reflection of what people thought the womb versus baby looked like? Or just the point is you need to see what the fetus looks like. So my feeling is that it's the latter that you need. It, it, it's, it's more diagram. I think of them as diagrams, not as observational drawings, right? So they are, they're there to show you fetal position um and that is done particularly if you're if you're working for an audience that has no training in reading medical images they are much more readable but i think it also plays into what sort of one of the big arguments in my book which is that these aren't just images to teach practice you know they have all kinds of other uses and meanings and i think a big one of them is that they are um encouraging appealing images of an infant um, which a, people like to see um, and, you know, could act as a sort of proof of good practice. If a midwife has these images, they can say, look, look I can I can deal with these situations. I can produce for you this kind of, you know, healthy, well-developed male child. Um, you know, that that, that that kind of visual argument can function so much beyond the technical. Um, what did you come across that one just uh, that you really loved? What was your favorite part of this of like writing this book? Mm, I feel like I have a couple of because a couple of I remember very strongly um, being at a conference and discussing with another scholar the similar the visual similarities between my images and alchemical images, and that was such a eureka moment for me because it really allowed me to break out of these are medical images for medical practice to think about. Whoa, they can mean all kinds of things. And not only that they could, but that there's like lots of evidence that they did, that this is a totally legitimate way to think about them. You know, that they are also expressing alchemical understandings of how conception worked. Um, and then another big one, which came later, because it was with the later material, was the discovery that um, the... Uh, lots of the images made um, in the midwifery manual by John Burton in, in the sort of mid 18th century were just copies um, of anatomical illustrations made for um, uh, Albinus. And this was one of those wow moments because so I think somewhat, you know, one scholar noted it in the 60s and then everyone ignored him. <laughs> um, and actually it's it shows these sort of networks of knowledge and image exchange and how images can travel across genres um and then it's you know it's not just an interesting fact that they're copies but it really shows you how people were taking existing knowledge and moving it to new audiences and new purposes so you in it you um your story engages with uh the history of gender right this idea of like how women interact gender relations the history of medicine um obviously but there is, and I love the amount that we've talked about here about like epistemologies, like how knowledge is produced and that, that as well. 
but I mean, there's also a lot that that um, just like how image travels, right, and how knowledge travels that you you're able to really comment on here that I find fascinating as a straight historian rather than artist and an art historian. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a print scholar sort of by training, and I think it's just one of the wonderful things about as a specialism and a source material is that print is mobile. It's miraculously mobile for early modern audiences. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, are you, what is the range of like a novel, one of your images? Where, where would they, like, how far can these books go? Yeah, I mean, and that is such an interesting question that I unfortunately didn't pursue as far as it could go. You know, global book history is such a growing field. And, you know, I would love to know more about quite how far they went. Um, And there are so many barriers to do with language access and library access around the world and also where books were preserved. But what we do know is that, you know, most of the midwifery manuals in the early modern period were initially written in Western Europe but then were exported throughout the rest of Europe, either in translation or just straight exportation that people would read the Latin or the French. Um, and then they were taken to North America. Um, my strong suspicion is that they also went further afield, but I do, the evidence is not something that I've managed to track down. I'm, it may well exist, and that would be so interesting. It's not work I've done, though. Mm-hmm. Well, um, this is very widespread imagery. And how long does it persist? Like, how long do we consider? Until today. <laughs> um, birth figures are still with us, I think. You know, I, um, if you end up encountering all of the information that's given to people who are pregnant now, you know, you, you still find them. They were, in my, they were in my sort of medical notes that I had to take to all my, my midwives' appointments. Um, you know, three birth figures just printed in my medical notes. Um, which was just wonderful um, to see. And I think, you know, I talk a little bit about this in my conclusion, though. I really, you know, it really wasn't a study, a focus of my study is that they mean such different things for us today. And they meant such different things in the 19th century um, and, you know, pre and post the NHS. But um, they've never stopped being a part of our visual culture of pregnancy. I think, people, you know, because it remains a point of great importance. Yeah, um, yeah, I have a sonogram hanging on my refrigerator right now. That's not mine, <laughs> um, you know, because I got it as an, a baby announcement. Right, someone sent me a sonogram. Wow, and it's fascinating because we have such a better idea. Just like I can, I can Google on the internet right now and figure out what a fetus looks like as opposed to 500 years ago when you know it was shrouded in metaphorical and literally shrouded, but. Um, yeah, it's interesting that it's still, there's something really magical about that. Look at this thing that's going on. Yeah, and I mean, the other interesting thing is that, uh, you know, obviously you can establish fetal presentation much more easily today, but it's, uh, it's it, midwives still find it difficult all the time and mistakes are made and, you know, someone th- thinks their baby might be breech, but they're not. Um, or, you know, there's a surprise foot presentation that no one was expecting, you know, that Fetal presentation is still sort of like an active concern in childbirth. Um, so these images still are, you know, still have their valency, you know, in medical practice and in sort of wider cultural understandings of pregnancy. Um, right. So um, just to, I've taken up quite a bit of your time. So I'll just like a couple more, just a couple more things uh, before we close off here. But um, 
so what what's next what do you are you done with your birth figures or you're moving forward am I done with my birth figures I mean I hope maybe I'll we'll come back to them one day <laughs> at the moment though I'm working on a project about um sex and medicine in the 19th century um again book illustrations are my focus but my plan is to sort of understand cultures um how sexuality and sex was inflecting medical culture in the 19th century and through study of medical images in concert with other kinds of images like popular satire um, and pornography as well um so you know birth figures feature a little bit in my work these days and midwifery is still definitely an aspect but uh, um less of an exclusive focus mm-hmm. are you finding is there this massive break and you know not quite 1778 or whatever but like are you finding a, a a considerable difference between the 19th and 18th centuries i certainly am yeah <laughs> yeah i mean I, i'm really enjoying working on the 19th century at the moment it's so fascinating but it is so so different and I think one of the big things that's been a shock for me is how much more material there is out there to work with and to wade through. Um, you know, one of the joys of birth figures is that there were not that many midwifery manuals to get through. And that's not true for the 19th century. Sure. Um, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I've just recently interviewed someone who translated a midwifery manual, um, which is when I learned that they exist. Uh, <laughs> And um, I or like you know, really thought about them for the first time, but there aren't that many, right? I mean, uh, I mean, it's all relative, isn't it? Yes, for the early modern period, this sort of it's it is much easier to sort of keep a handle on what was published. Yeah, yeah. No, I would that then, but being published doesn't mean that you know, not having them doesn't mean they weren't there to some extent. That's certainly true. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Which books were used to destruction is such an persistent question in book history yeah hmm. fascinating well that is, that sounds really exciting um a whole new historiography or a, you know body of scholarship to read around though good lord yeah it's a bit i'm just at the beginning of this project so it's looking rather large at the moment but um <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's go with ambitious right <laughs> sure yeah <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. It was so nice to talk to you today, Rebecca. Yes, nice to talk to you. Yeah. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye.